people who, who think, um, you know, oh, we don't, we don't clap in church. Uh, but scripture commands us to appreciate those who serve us well and to honor them. And so I think it's okay to appreciate people for their service and ministry to us. Worship, whether it be musical worship, whether it be praying, whether it be um, singing, uh, good corporate worship always leads us to, to lose ourselves in the goodness and glory and majesty of Christ, to see our sin, our problems, our failures, our successes, our joys uh, in that perspective. It leads us to marvel at the one who purchased us at the price of his very own blood. And I believe that we were led there this morning. And so I am grateful uh, to, to this team for leading us in musical worship. If you would open with me now to 1 John, we're going to look at uh, chapters 3 and 5. I'm going to read 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24, and chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, as we conclude uh, this nine-week series in the book of 1 John this morning. So follow along with me as I read 19 to 24 of chapter 3, 14 and 15 of chapter 5, and then we will pray. By this we shall know we are of the truth, and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if your heart condemn, if your heart does not condemn, let me read that verse again, 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 say, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that... Um, that you have called us to, to come to uh, the throne of grace, to come boldly because of Christ, who has not only gone before us in, in his life and death and resurrection and ascension into your presence, but who goes with us. As we are told that in Christ we have an advocate. And it is not because of our character or our sinlessness or our greatness that we get to come boldly before your throne, but because of Christ's, because of his sinless perfection, because of his death and resurrection on our part. And so, Lord, may we be a church that, that is committed to prayer, that approaches you boldly, not only personally in our, uh, in our lives, but, uh, but together as well, that we would be a church committed to prayer, that we would understand, as told by uh, a great pastor in history, that, that churches are like windmills without wind until the Spirit of God fills them with power. 
And Lord, we know that you respond, you, you desire for us to pray, and, and that you work in response, you give your spirit in response, so that the only explanation can be you, and not our work, not our strength, not our might. And so may you make us a prayerful church. Lord, we pray this morning the same prayer for, for other churches uh, that, that meet here in town. Lord, this morning I would pray for, for Walla Walla Cowboy Church. Lord, I pray that they would uh, have the same commitment to prayer. Lord, I pray that they would understand as we would understand that the thing that ultimately binds us together is not our common similarities or the type of shoes or belt buckles we wear, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it is Christ who has bound us into one church, one body, one new man, that we are baptized into one Lord in one faith with one baptism that that would be the unifying factor in your church and that the gospel in Jesus would be enough to unify us across our differences. Lord, we pray for uh, InterVarsity and the ministry there and, uh, and Donnan as she uh, ministers there and as they're looking for uh, somebody to fill that ministry in the fall, Lord, we pray that you would provide that person. Lord, we thank you uh, that she continues to fill in and that InterVarsity continues on that campus. Lord, we pray... Um, I don't know if the request was for uh, two new small groups or that there are two small groups that are there, but whatever the number is, Lord, you know those whom are yours there. And we ask you to give them great strength and boldness and willingness to, uh, to share the gospel and study your word. Lord, we pray with her that the foreign students would hear the gospel as well. Lord, we pray that you would show us what our part in that is. That, that there is a mission field right here very close to us and that we can and probably should have more of an influence in that ministry than just to send money every month. Lord, we pray for those uh, among us who are rejoicing and those who are hurting. Lord, we thank you for uh, the praise we heard this week as, as uh, Ava uh, Lopez, Jack's granddaughter, um, has received uh, a f- her first cancer-free scan and, and we are grateful to you for that. We're grateful that you have answered those prayers. Lord, we also want to bring uh, heavy things to you. Lord, we bring Rowan to you, Allie and Justin's granddaughter. And as she awaits heart transplant and this heart surgery was not successful, Lord, I, I imagine that uh, seeing your infant child or grandchild in such desperate need and needing a heart would be uh, burdensome. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, comfort uh, them, comfort Allie and Justin, comfort Rowan's parents, Lord, that, uh, that Jay and his wife, whose name escapes me right now, whom you know, would be comforted in this time. And Lord, we ask that you would provide a heart for her. Lord, we pray for Nancy Kusler and this continued bone infection and the surgery she's going to be having as this infection in her foot is, uh, is destroying much there, Lord. I certainly can identify with with the difficulty and the pain of that. And so we ask that you would bring her relief from this uh, infection as well. Lord, let us see and know and delight in you and in your word today. May we see and know our uh, status and standing before you. And, And if there are any among us this morning, Lord, who do not know you, bring about repentance and salvation in them. And Lord, for those of us who are, bring about surety of our salvation and our standing before you. And we ask it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Am I really saved? 
When I die, if I were to die today, will I hear Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant, or will I hear, depart from me, for I never knew you? Ever have thoughts like this? Ever wonder what your spiritual standing will be before the Lord on the day that he either returns or you die and go and be with him? If so, I would say you're normal. That we all struggle with those questions. We all, we all wonder. And I think as we see uh, John right here in, in uh, chapter 3, verse, starting in verse 19, we see the, the, the fact that this is normal in the life of the believer, that our hearts need reassurance. Look with me at verse 19. He says, By this we shall know we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Our, even, though, even though our heads might know our spiritual standing, might know the truth, might know what God has done for us, sometimes our hearts need reassurance that we really are the children of God. And so we see here first and foremost that those who, who are genuinely saved are people of the truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. And may I just say, I think the world is desperately in need of people who know the truth. Because we've substituted truth for, for lies, for any truth. This is not in my notes. I'm in a bit of a soap, on a bit of a soapbox here. But have, just, just have conversations with people and notice how, how what we, we used to say was, I think. You will rarely hear people say, I think, anymore. I think in our culture has been replaced with, I feel. I feel like that's a good decision. I feel like I should do this, that, or the other. I feel like, you know, this is where God is leading me. I feel like that's the church for me. I don't feel like going to church today. Whatever our feelings are, feelings are fickle. We are people who can know the truth. And we can know that we are of the truth. Notice that he does not only say that we are people of the truth. By this we shall know we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. We, we see here in these opening verses that first those who are saved are of the truth. Secondly, we can know that we are of the truth. The Christian life does not have to be a guessing game. And thirdly, we see that even though we can know, sometimes we doubt. Sometimes our hearts need reassurance. Sometimes our hearts condemn us, particularly, usually when there's sin in our lives that we're struggling to have control over. It leaves us in a position of feeling like, am I, am I really saved? Feelings aren't bad, by the way. I don't want to paint that picture Feelings aren't bad, they're just fickle. They're good indicators of what's going on in our hearts. They're not very good dictators of what's going on in the world or with God. Uh, Steve Lawson gave a great analogy speaking of this passage. He, he said, if we think of the Christian life or even our lives as like a train, truth is the engine that pulls the train. Faith is like the boxcars that make up the substance of the Christian life. And feelings are the caboose. 
It is the, it is the truth of God and, and the faith that God has given us that is to pull our feelings along. And we can run into problems when we, re, when we reverse that order. All of the vital signs have been for this purpose, by the way. All of these nine vital signs we've looked at through the book of 1 John are given to us for the purpose that we might know we have eternal life. Look with me at 1 John 5, 13, the verse immediately preceding the two that we read. John tells us here at the end of this letter, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. All of these vital signs, all of these, uh, these spiritual checks in our life uh, are designed, given to us by God, that we might be sure of our salvation. And I think what we see in verse 21 of chapter 3 is that John, as he writes this, and God, as he inspires it, doesn't want us to doubt. Beloved, if our heart condemns us, this if is not uh, conditional in the sense of it may or may not, but probably more akin to the idea of when, But when your heart condemns you, when there is some sin in your life and you're like, man, I'm not sure if I'm a believer. Am I really saved? Am am I going to heaven? Am I not going to heaven? We have confidence before God. Even then, we can still have confidence before God. How do we do that? By looking at these vital signs. And that brings us to our vital sign today, which is confidence in prayer. Confidence in prayer. In prayer, God wants us to see that our prayer lives are indicators of our spiritual life. Notice in verse 23, the conjunction and, or actually, uh, yes, and. And this, no, I'm sorry, verse 22. I had the wrong, uh, wrong verse here in my notes. Verse 22. And whatever we, re- we ask, we receive from him. What is the connection here between prayer and doubt and the assurance of our salvation? Well, that is, I think, what John wants to tell us today. Prayer, our prayer lives can be indicators to us, uh, one of these uh, vital signs that show us our spiritual standing before God. There is a long-standing tradition in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia that any citizen of the kingdom has access to the king can come before the throne. In 1952, King Abdul Aziz made a decree that not only upheld, but formalized this tradition, saying that any member, any citizen of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia can come to the king and present himself to the king at any time to plead his case or his cause or whatever uh, the, the circumstances might be. Could you imagine the kind of confidence there would be if you knew that any point in time, today, you could pick up the phone and call the president or the governor or the mayor, that you could present yourself before him, whether you agree with him or not, and make a case before the king. There would be great value in that ability and opportunity as citizens of a kingdom. But for believers, the king of the universe, the king of all kings who we sung about this morning is always within earshot. And he can give every single one of us his complete and undivided attention. God never has to divide his attention when two people are praying. 
This was impressed upon me at a very young age. I had the opportunity to travel to a, a church in downtown L.A., uh, with my grandmother who was representing teen missions and it was a missions conference and we were there at this church and I think, uh, I think the three of us who went together were, were the only white people in the room. Uh, it was a predominantly black church. I would venture to say it is the single most friendly church I have ever been a part of. Uh, I've been there once and I felt incredibly loved by this congregation. But at one point in time, uh, we, were, we were given the opportunity to pray. And so the, the service leader said, you know, okay, this is what we're going to be praying for. Just please pray where you are. And, and I, you know, in my mostly Southern Baptist, non-denominational upbringing, bowed my head to pray silently. Uh, that is not the idea that everybody else had in the room. They all prayed, and they all prayed out loud. And I was overwhelmed. As a, I think I was 13, somewhere in there. Because what dawned on me in that moment is that God hears all of these. I couldn't make sense of any of it. But God can. He can give his undivided attention. For believers, the king of the universe is always within earshot. And he wants to hear from us. Prayer is such an important part of our lives. We can go with confidence before Almighty God and talk to Him, share with Him our thoughts and joys and fears, and ask for what we believe, what we need. Every true believer will have some kind of prayer life. It may not be all that it should be, it may not be all that you want it to be, but it mustn't be all it shouldn't be either which is completely absent. And so today, I want to look at four characteristics of prayer in the life of a true believer. Number one, genuine believers pray regularly. Genuine believers pray regularly. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, tells us to pray without ceasing. Prayers should not be rare in the life of the believer. I don't, mean, I don't think Paul means there that you should never stop praying. I think Paul is saying it should be habitual and regular in our lives. We are not God. We cannot give everything our undivided attention. And so I don't think that's the case that he is making for there, uh, making for, to, to us there. I think he is saying prayer should be regular. And I think, I think uh, John treats prayer as regular in these verses as well. Look with me at verse 22. He says, and whatever we ask we receive from him. And then in chapter 5, verse 14, he says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Anything does not sound like a um, whatever, and anything don't, don't have the ring of rarity to them. Whatever we ask, whenever we ask, anything we ask, I think maybe these words particularly point us to the regularity of prayer when we see right here at the end of chapter 3 and also at the end of chapter 2, the call on our lives has been to abide in Christ. How do we abide in Christ? We abide in his word and we abide in prayer. In prayer, we speak to God and in his word, he speaks to us. If your life, if your prayer life isn't all that you would hope it is, well, then you are in good company. Because my prayer life isn't all I hope it would be. Prayer is hard work for me. Prayer is hard work for me. I find encouragement in the fact that the, this might be strange encouragement, but I find encouragement in the fact that the disciples fell asleep in the garden. Haven't we all done that? Like you wake up and you go, oh, maybe I should say amen. 
right? Like, prayer is hard work. And I think we even see prayer as hard work in Jesus' life. I hear stories of people spending hours uh, of time in prayer easily or, or wearing out the, the carpet in their office, pastors wearing out the carpet in their office from kneeling to pray. And I envy those people. It doesn't come so easily to me. And my prayer life is rarely all that I would hope it to be. So it's okay if prayer is hard work for you too. But prayerlessness is not an option in the life of the believer. Is prayer present or is prayer absent in your life? Number two, genuine believers' prayers are answered. We have these slides up there. There we go. Uh, Two, genuine believers' prayers are answered. Look with me uh, at verse 22, and actually we see this uh, in chapter 4 as well. So chapter 3, verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Chapter 5, uh, verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And, we, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Genuine believers' prayers are answered. Notice the formula here in both chapters. We ask, God answers. We make our requests known. He gives us, in some ways, the desire of our hearts. This this, this doesn't mean we get everything we ask for. This is not uh, some name-it-and-claim-it spirituality that, that Christ's death has secured for me, not primarily salvation, but primarily what I want in this life. And now all I have to do is name what I want and claim it, and like a genie in a bottle, God will give it to me. God isn't required to do what we want, when we want, how we want. By the way... If you think of God like that, if you think he exists to do what you want, when you want, how you want, fundamentally, you really believe your God. Because you believe it's you that gives direction to him and not the other way around. God says no, frequently. And he always says no for our good. I would be lying if I stood up here and I told you that I always understand that. When an infant child gets sick and dies, or a spouse, or you lose a job, and you prayed otherwise, I don't know how God is good in that, always, but I know that his word tells me that he is good in that, and what I know is that that what the information he has before him about what's good for me, good for his church, good for mankind, and good for his glory is infinitely far more than my understanding. I don't always understand why God does what he does. But I can know and be assured by his word that he is good. How can I know? Because he did not spare his only son. And if he did not spare his only son to save me from my sin, to redeem my life from the death and destruction of my sin. If he did not spare his only son, but offered him up in my place to die where I should have died, I can't believe that he would withhold any good thing from me because he has already given me the ultimate thing. I must believe in his goodness. And so sometimes he says no. 
But even in the no's, I can trust that he's God. The question here is not, does God answer all of my prayers? But rather, does God answer some of my prayers? We will see in the next two points the kind of prayers that God likes to answer. But God is listening to the believer. If you are saved, if you are forgiven, if you are a child of God, he is always within earshot. And he's not just listening, by the way. He is longing to hear from you. You always have his ear. You always have his attention. You always have access to him. Genuine believers have prayers that are answered. Number three, genuine believers pray uh, God-pleasing prayers. Genuine believers pray God-pleasing prayers. Look with me again at chapter 3, starting in verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandment and do what pleases him. Notice he answers, because we do what pleases him. Now, there's a great danger here. There's a danger here in thinking this is kind of a a tit-for-tat exchange. Like, if, if I do something that's pleasing to God, I'm somehow currying favor with him, and he will be more inclined to answer my prayers. Fight the temptation to think that way. There is one basis for which God hears you and answers your prayers and blesses you, as we're told in Ephesians, with every good thing, every heavenly blessing, and that is Jesus Christ. It is not your goodness that makes you acceptable to God, it's Christ. It's not your goodness that makes God uh, respond to your prayers, it's Christ's. He is the sole mediator on our behalf. He is our great high priest in Hebrews. So why then is there this idea that if I obey, uh, that, that God will bless me? Well, if you're a parent, this is really, really easy to understand. And if you're not a parent, if you're still living with your parents, pay close attention, okay? I'm going to give you a key here that's really, really good. It's much, much easier to bless your kids And grant their requests when they are living their lives in a way that you can bless. When I live my life in obedience to God, I position myself inside of the the designated area of his blessings. And when I move myself outside of that area, I move myself outside of the designated area of his blessings. Sin is never blessable. It is redeemable, but it's never blessable. And so when our kids are living lives within the confines of what God has told us, this is how you live in a way that is blessable, it's easy to say yes. It's easy to grant their requests. When we are living lives that are pleasing to God, we tend to pray prayers that are pleasing to God. And then we make pleasing requests. And then God is pleased to grant us our requests. Contrast James chapter 4 verse 3 with that. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We're told very clearly that when we ask for the wrong mo- with the wrong motives and for the wrong purposes, we don't receive what we ask for. And so it is not that that our obedience curries favor with God. It is that our obedience positions us in the place that God has said, this is where I will bless you. In this way, our prayers don't move God as much as they move us. 
I think of it like, I heard an analogy one time, it's like, it's like if you were uh, out on a small sailboat on a lake and the wind just stops and you're stuck. Or if you prefer you're in a motorboat and you run out of gas and you're stuck. And somebody comes along and they're walking by the shore and you're able to throw a rope all the way to where they are on the shore. And they take hold of the other end of that rope and you begin to pull yourself in, you're not pulling the shore to yourself. You're pulling yourself to shore. And when we cast the rope of our prayers to an immovable God and begin to pull our, on those, it does not move him any more than the shore moves to us, but moves us to him, to the places of his blessing, into places of obedience. Prayer moves us to God, which brings us to our final and fourth point, and that is that genuine believers pray according to God's will. Look with me at chapter 5, verse 15, and we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. Well, let me back up to verse 14, I'm sorry. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we asked of him. God hears and answers our prayers when, when we uh, pray according to his will. It's really easy to slip into the thinking that says God exists for our glory and our good and our salvation. It's backwards thinking. It's playing God once again. Our salvation, our lives, and even our prayers are for his glory. Jesus modeled this for us, by the way, in his own life. The king of glory modeled it in his own life. He taught his disciples to pray, your will be done, your kingdom come. He taught us to align our prayers to the will of God. And then not only did he teach us to align our prayers to the will of God, he modeled this in, in Gethsemane, the night before he dies, the night before he goes to the cross. He's doing the hard work of prayer. And we see it there. He's sweating. And not only is he sweating, he's sweating blood. This is an indication of extreme stress. And he models this for us even in his stress and fear when he says, Father, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. The question is, what cup? I think it's easy sometimes to say, oh man, he was afraid of crucifixion. He was afraid of what was coming the next day. I don't think that's what he was afraid of. I don't think he wanted to experience crucifixion, but I don't think what, what brought such terror to him that night was crucifixion. Psalm 75, verses 7 through 8 says this, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Lord, take this cup from me. What cup? This, this Psalm 75 foaming cup of God's wrath shaken up. That's where the foam comes from. God's got his wrath and it's in a cup and it's shooken up and it's ready to be poured out. And Jesus knows he's going to drink it down to the dregs. He's going to absorb every bit of God's wrath that I deserve. And he's terrified. And even in the midst of his prayer, when he does not want to face crucifixion, uh, sure, but wrath of God, certainly, he nevertheless prays, not my will, 
but yours be done. He not only commands it of us, he models it for us. And if Jesus can pray this in the face of God's wrath, then certainly we can pray it in the difficult circumstances of life. Because in his goodness, he did pour out that wrath on his son and not on us. He did raise his son to eternal life so that he could give us eternal life with him. We will never face that cup. We will never face that wrath. If we can't, Jesus drank the whole thing for us. How much more should we pray in this way? How much more can we trust his goodness? And so genuine believers pray regularly. Their prayers are answered. Maybe not all of the time, but sometimes. They pray prayers that are pleasing to God and according to his will. And with this, we come to the end of our series in 1 John. These nine vital signs. Genuine believers. First, we saw have real communion with the Father and with the Son in chapter 1. We also see in chapter 1 that real believers confess their sin. We don't pretend we don't have sin. We confess it to God. We agree with him about the sinfulness of our sin. Verse, or number three, uh, genuine believers are committed to obeying God's word. We're committed to obedience. Number four, uh, genuine believers have compassion for other believers. Number five, believers, genuine believers in Christ have had a change of affection. We don't love the things of the world anymore. We love the Lord. Number six, genuine believers can comprehend the truth. We have been given the mind of Christ. Number seven, genuine believers are being conformed into the image of Christ. Number eight, genuine believers have conflict with the world because we are no longer of this world. We are merely in it. And number nine, genuine believers can have confidence in prayer. And so there are your nine vital signs of spiritual life. If anybody wants those in writing, just let me know. I'll get them to you with verse references happily. I need to do that for somebody already. But the question before us then is, what now? This is nice information, Logan. Thank you for sharing it with us. Believers have a real relationship with Jesus. They confess their sin. They're committed to obedience. They have compassion for believers, a change of affections, comprehension of the truth, conformity to Christ, conflict with the world, and confidence in prayer. What's next, though? Here's what's next. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 through 6. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to, make, to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Examine yourselves. Don't gloss over this. Don't simply say, oh yeah, I'm saved and I know it. Examine yourselves. The call on the believer is to examine ourselves, to put ourselves to the test, to see whether or not we are in the faith or whether or not we fail to meet the test. Are the vital signs present in your life? If not, Believe in Christ and who he is and what he has done in his death and resurrection and repent of your sin and turn to him in affection and ask God's forgiveness and be saved. And then tell somebody. There's no shame in that. I don't care if you've been going to church for 50 years. If today is the day that you see, I have no vital signs, I'm dead like Lazarus, like we sang about, I need Jesus to call me out of the grave. And like Lazarus, by the way, when he does, we have no more option to come out than did Lazarus. Receive God's forgiveness. 
And don't be ashamed of that. Let the church rejoice with you. Tell somebody. Let us help you take next steps in becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus. But if you are, if you say, look, these vital signs are present in my my life. I'm genuinely saved. Stop spending your time trying to be good enough for God. You're never going to be good enough for God. Jesus did that, at least not until eternity. It's Jesus who's good enough. Let's let Jesus be Jesus and get about the business of living the spiritual life that God has designed for us. That we must be taking steps towards holiness, but we've got to get about kingdom work. If you are in the kingdom, you have the responsibility of telling others that they can become kingdom citizens too. If you have spiritual life, you are called by uh, by God to invite others to come alive too. And by the way, this is where our lives begin to take on spiritual power. I think what happens is so often we look at our spiritual lives and we go, oh, my life is generally powerless. So, So I must not have spiritual life. But then we look at the vital signs and we go, oh, look, they're there. I'm not dead. I'm not an unbeliever. I'm just a comatose believer. My heart's beating, but there's no power in my life. And I think the reason for this is sometimes we have forgotten what God gives us power for. Acts chapter 1 verse 6, right before Jesus ascends to heaven. He tells the disciples, he says, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it kingdom time, Lord? Are you here to rule and reign? Are you going to be in charge? Are you going to vanquish our enemies? They thought the kingdom consisted primarily of what happened in Israel. We tend to think the kingdom consists primarily of what happens inside these four walls. And Jesus instructs them otherwise. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. I think maybe some of us believers need to hear that. When it's time for me to come back and rule and reign is none of your business. You can't know. That is fixed by his authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The power that comes from the Holy Spirit, from God on high in our lives, is not so that we can live our lives to ourselves feeling powerful. It's so that we might do spiritual good to others. If you're living a comatose Christian life, the vital signs are there, but you don't feel much power, ask yourself the question, where inside the church am I helping people to know and love Jesus better? And where outside the church am I being his witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth? If you are primarily a Christian consumer, you are are relegating yourselves to a powerless life. It was never God's design. 
The primary question facing every one of us this morning is not, what can I get out of church today, but what can I give to it? As a sacrifice, as an offering, as worship to the Lord. If you walk in these doors, attend this service, and walk out, that's comatose Christianity. Do somebody else good. Go to an adult Bible class and participate in the conversation for the good of those who are there. Serve in children's ministry or youth ministry. Get a cup of coffee and sit down at a table and ask somebody, how are you doing? And when they say, fine, say, are you really? But do somebody's spiritual good. When you walk out those doors, understand that you go out as witnesses. The kingdom here does not consist yet in the absolute reign of Christ. It exists in his people going out and calling other people to come into the kingdom. And that's what there's power for. If your spiritual life is on on life support, stop being a spiritual consumer. And start asking how you can do good to others. 1 Corinthians is clear that the spirit, no spiritual gift is given for your own edification. That they are all given for the common good. Whatever God has gifted you with, personally, spiritually, whoever he has made you to be, he has made you that so that you can do the church good. Not so that you can be seen for your gifts. None of that was in my notes. But here we are. If you have spiritual life, but it feels dead spiritually, my guess is it's because you have forgotten what God has given you the spirit for. It's power to be his witnesses. If the vital signs are there and you don't feel the power of God coursing through your veins, go tell somebody about Jesus. In great fear and trepidation and trembling, By the way, that's exactly where God wants you to be. So that in the end, when something amazing happens, the only answer is God did that. Do something to help others know and love Jesus. That's where there's power. I heard Mark Dever say something one time. I've repeated it a lot, but it impacted me. So I'll share it with you. If you're not helping someone else to follow Jesus, I don't know what you mean when you say you do. If you're not helping someone else to follow Jesus, I don't know what you mean when you say you do. Lord, let us follow in your footsteps. Let us be disciple makers. Let us go out with great fear and trembling and proclaim the kingdom to Jerusalem and Judea, to Walla Walla and the valley and Washington and the ends of the earth. And when we do so with great fear and trembling, may we feel and know and experience the power of your spirit And may it drive us to prayer so that in the end, you are the only explanation for whatever happens. Lord, we we are your mouthpiece, but it's you who calls people out of the grave. Use us to do that. Command people who do not know you to come to life, whether it be in this room or, or as we go out. Give us great power Lord, if there are any among us, and there probably are, 
who do not know you, who do not have spiritual life, would you call them out of the grave? Would you bring them to faith and repentance and save them and, and let, them, uh, let us joyfully celebrate that with them? Lord, let us never be a church that simply exists for ourselves, but that we might exist to see the kingdom grow. Sinners saved. The dead come to life. May we see that it's always a miracle and may it always be for your glory. Amen.